this always comes back to the thing that can never be said enough is that the reason that our temperatures are rising and it's getting hotter and hotter is because we continue to burn fossil fuels and we have to reduce fossil fuel emissions much faster than we're doing. And Australia is like Texas where I live, one of the you know major culprits in all of this. And we need to look at that forthrightly and straightforwardly and and understand that. And you know, there's no longer any economic reason to be burning fossil fuels. Clean energy is much cheaper everywhere in the world than fossil fuel energy. That is the author of Heat, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, Jeff Goodell, speaking just today, and today is Tuesday, 18th of July, on a webinar organised by Sweltering Cities. Well done and welcome. You've made it to the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now, before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Let's listen now as the founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities, Emma Bacon, has a conversation with the author of Heat, Jeff Goodell. So first, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm today joining from Aboriginal land. Um, This was stolen land that was never ceded. I'm joining from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people here in Nam. Um, this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'd like to pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and any First Nations people who are here today. So we are here today to talk to Jeff Goodall, who's here with me um, about his latest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, which I've been reading and obviously making a lot of <laughs> notes about, um, we can see. Um, this session is being hosted by Sweltering Cities. I'm the executive director and founder of Sweltering Cities and some of my colleagues are also here today. Um, we Sweltering Cities works directly with communities impacted by extreme heat. We've started in 2020 and we're now a national organisation with work on the ground in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, our three key areas of work is community organising, strategic campaigns and telling a different story about extreme heat. And what that means is saying, you know, at the moment on extremely hot days, on you know record heat days, there's a tendency of the media to sometimes cover that as positive news, have pictures of people at the beach. And what we want to do is put the stories of people with the lived experience of extreme heat who can speak to the challenges, speak to the risk front and centre when we talk about heat waves. And, you know, that's why we're here talking to Jeff today, because his new book it does exactly that. It challenges the way that we all think about heat. It puts the stories of people who are highly impacted right at the centre, and it really, you know, gives an incredible um, impression of that visceral, um, the visceral sense of extreme heat. So we're really excited to have him here today with us. Um, So Jeff is, as I said, the author of The The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, but he's also the author of six previous books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the remaking of a civilized world, which I've read and I can strongly recommend. 
um, which was a New York Times critics top book of 2017. Jeff's also been covering climate change for more than two decades at Rolling Stone and has discussed climate and energy issues on NPR, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox News and the Oprah Winfrey Show. Um, it's amazing. Um, he's a senior fellow at the Adrian Ashed Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Centre, um, which is how I first met Jeff, through the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance. And he's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. So, um, Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, and thanks for joining us in such a different time zone. I think you're in um, in Texas, so a uh, very different time of day and probably as we were just talking about incredibly different uh, weather right now, it's quite cool in Melbourne and you're saying it's still 38 degrees in the evening in Austin. Yeah, 38 degrees, sun is just going down. Uh, it's been uh, it was about 40 earlier today, uh, which is actually relatively cool given the temperatures we've had in the last few weeks. So it's been it's been really hot here. Yeah, it's been um, quite shocking seeing, as always, even as someone who works in this area, what the heat has been like in in North America, and I think I've been reading that um, twelve or fifteen people might have died in national parks um, over the last weeks, um, going on hikes and not being well prepared. Um, so let's kick off into the book. So to begin with, your your goal for the book, do you say, is to get us to think about heat in a different way? Um, can you tell us a bit more about why we need to think differently about heat? Yeah, we need to think differently about heat because heat is a dangerous force that will kill us. Um, and as we move into a hotter world, those um, think being smarter about heat is going to become more and more urgent and more and more important. You know, I, you know, I have been writing about climate change for 20 years. And, you know, obviously, heat, the idea of heat is no secret in the climate any kind of climate conversation, right? It's called global warming, right? But but I never, you know, really thought about heat as a phenomenon itself um, until I happened to be walking down the street in Phoenix. Uh, I happened to be there on a like a day that was like, I don't know, 42, 43C. And um, I just walked 10 or 12 blocks and I felt myself kind of getting dizzy and my heart pounding and and I thought, oh my God, this is like scary. I just walked 12 blocks and I'm already like, you know, feeling it. And um, it made me think about like, oh, this is, you know, a more dangerous thing than I had understood. And, you know, what are the implications of this? And I, and it just really struck me how, how lethal that, that, that heat felt to me. And then I started kind of noodling around with it and talking to friends and I realized and I and I realized that I didn't even know what heat was I I couldn't have described heat to you I could have told you about temperature and I could say that 95 degrees is warmer than 92 degrees but if you asked me to describe what heat was I, I couldn't do it so I thought oh this is an interesting subject to explore and that's basically how the book was born amazing and I think I've in some ways gone through a similar um, process before we started sweltering cities where you think about disasters as being really present, like in Australia, bushfires, floods, fires, like storms, so present, but heat is this underlying thing we experience. But now understanding that this is a disaster, this is heat that we've never experienced before. Um, 
and that transition, you know, I can really relate to that. Um, you've also written a book about this really incredible book about rising sea levels. What made you want to take on what well, you're saying, you, you know, that experience of taking on heat waves after that book? Um, but in terms of writing another book about environmental disasters, like, did you have to change your approach between writing about sea level rise and writing about heat in the way that you, you know, engage with experts or members of the public or, you know, looked at the community, looked at the world? Um, yes and no. I mean, in, in, in both books, I try to do a very um, novelistic, almost, you know, character-based narrative storytelling. You know, I obviously spent a lot of time with scientists and and very familiar with and read a lot of science papers and things, but I sort of think of myself as a translator um, from, you know, the world of science to the world of, of like ordinary people. And mm -hmm. my job is to try to communicate this complex science in ways that is um, dramatic and revealing without being reductionist uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to that science. But there's a fundamental difference between, you know, writing a book about sea level rise and writing a book about heat. And in fact, there's two. One is that um, nobody dies from sea level rise. I mean, there is obviously it increases storm surges and can increase flooding. But, you know, you're not going to stand on the beach, you know, in Sydney and drown because Antarctica is melting right at that moment. Right. I mean, it, it's not a real time mortality risk. There's lots of risk to real estate. There's lots of risk to investment. There's lots of risk to how we think about our cities, about the borders between land and sea, all of those things and increased storm surges from hurricanes. But heat is sort of the opposite. Heat is very much about mortality. It's about this sort of killing force that not only will kill you, but is, you know, every living thing on the, on our planet from, you know, uh, oak trees to butterflies to polar bears are vulnerable to changes in heat and so that's one thing that's very different the other thing that's very different is is you know rising seas are kind of easy to see you know I, I started my book about sea level rise when I went to Miami on a what's called sunny day flooding when it was sort of basically just a really high tide and there was two feet of water in you know this area called Sunset Harbor which is one of their sort of wealthy neighborhoods of Miami and I couldn't believe it I was there on a like so it's like a perfectly sunny day and there's two feet of water here. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I could see the problem very visually. It was very clear. With heat, it's invisible. And so it's very hard to communicate. And so the challenge of writing about it is how do you communicate and talk about the threat, the risks, the implications of this sort of invisible force? So part of my job in this book, I felt like was to make visible the invisible. Uh, and and that was not the case with the sea level rise book. Yes, I think that that really resonates with the story in Australia, where even a couple of years ago, um, some NGOs and insurance bodies put out a map of the most at risk areas from climate change in Australia, and of course, it was it was um, calculated using property damage. And so you saw the Gold Coast, for example, um, really low lying area. Um, you know, bushfire prone areas, you know, were seen as high risk of climate change, but Western Sydney was seen as at a low risk of climate change, even though, you know, we've already seen temperatures up to 50 degrees on the ground in areas like Penrith. So, you know, the choice of what to analyse and quantify, you know, changes the way we think about climate impacts and like heat has been excluded um, 
many ways. And I think the chapter in the book that follows a photojournalist to Pakistan to try and capture that image of like, what does heat look like? You know, what is, um, because it can be a really private suffering. Um, You know, I was speaking to a doctor recently about what it's like in an emergency room during a heat wave. And he said, actually, the emergency room is busy, but that's not the problem. The problem is that people die alone in their homes and they're not found for days. And, you know, we can't take pictures. Like, it's very hard to take a picture of that type of suffering and at scale. But you had a line in the book um, that it struck home with me. I've actually talked to people about it since I read it. Um, your line, uh, the way we communicate about extreme heat is often distorted by a nostalgia for a climate that no longer exists. And, yeah. you know, that feels like it's very present in our media, um, very present in, you know, the way we think about summers, even in Australia, like it, um, or probably all over the world. So this is linked to what you are just saying, but wondering, like, how did you approach trying to convey that visceral sense, that severity and the physical and emotional toll of heat waves? Like, you've taken quite a global view of the issue. Was that part of that, like having the local and the global sense? Yeah, I mean, part of the thing I'm trying to accomplish in this book is um, talking about heat on the sort of personal and micro level, um, what it does to you, to a human body as we, you know, as you're, as you move into heat exhaustion, heat stroke, what actually happens to you when you're exposed to extreme heat. And understand so that people can better and, and so that I also could better understand what these risks are and how they work and what can be done about them but also exploring heat as you know this macro force this it is the primary driver behind all the other climate impacts right I mean mm-hmm. it is rising heat that is causing the glaciers to melt that is causing the seas to rise it is rising heat it is drying out the moisture in the soils that is drying out then the trees that is making wildfires bigger and hotter. You know, it is the rising heat that is shifting the disease patterns as animals migrate in new ways. And, you know, we get mosquitoes carrying dengue and Zika and malaria and things like that moving to new regions. So I, I was trying to communicate the 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 heat as the sort of major force and heat as a, you know, a micro force as a thing that you have to worry about killing you if you're, you know, and, you know, one of the ways I I do this is, is by telling stories of some people who have, um, you know, who in one case, the opening chapter of the book is about a family who went for a hike in California, Um, a young family of 40, I think the, 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 the man was uh, 42, early 40s. The woman was in her late 30s. They had a one-year-old baby and a dog. And um, they were pretty experienced with hiker, hiking and stuff. And they went out for a hike. And it was a it was a hot day. Not that hot, but it was about, you know, 40C, 41C. And they hiked out into a canyon. And in the, in the middle of the day, they had to make this, you know, one mile, one and a half mile hike out of this canyon on a, on a switchbacks on a... Um, uh, you know, a, a slope that had no shade because there had been wildfires a few years earlier. And, you know, the next day, search parties who went out to see what happened to them because they didn't show up back at their car or at home found them all dead on the trail. And um, they died because of heat stroke. Um, and there's many stories like that. 
um, you know, outdoor workers, you know, suffer these kinds of fates. Uh, unfortunately, too often, people alone in their apartments, people alone in their houses, as you mentioned before. And you know, one of the hard things about the, the talking about the mortality of heat is that it's so poorly diagnosed, right? Heat is not like a gun that leaves a wound and it says, "Oh, there's a gunshot." There's not like a heat mark. So a lot of people who actually are succumbing to, you know, heat exhaustion and heat stroke have are diagnosed as heart attacks, right? Because that's often what kills mm -hmm. you because your heart starts pumping. And if you have any kind of weakness in your heart or circulatory system, um, you know, you're much more vulnerable, which is why older people and, and people in, in poor health are more vulnerable to extreme heat. So the, the real mortality, the real risks, I think, is are, are vastly underappreciated uh, or, or undercounted, I mean. Um, so I was trying to communicate, you know, those two big things. And, and just to, to your last point, or you're actually your first point and my last point, is about this nostalgia idea. And I think mm -hmm. one of the most important ideas that I'm trying to communicate in this book also on the on the climate level and others who are writing about this now are trying to communicate a similar thing is that the climate we all grew up in is gone. It is different now. We are not only living in a hotter world, we're living in a world that has different rules. And that's when we don't quite know what those rules are. So the jet stream is moving in different ways, meandering around. The mm -hmm. Arctic is, is, is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. We're seeing these kinds of extreme events that, you know, the, the models that have predicted warming have been average global warming year over year with CO2 levels where they are have been remarkably accurate. But the, the smaller scale extreme event uh, modeling is not very accurate at all. So we had in the US, we had a heat wave in 2021 in the Pacific Northwest and Washington state and in, and in British Columbia, Canada. You know, there was a, it was 121 degrees, which is, what is that, 43, 44C, something like that, which is far, far beyond. It was like snow in the Sahara there. I mean, it's like it, no one predicted that. So we're in this realm of like wild unpredictability on the micro scale or the regional scale with these extreme events. And, and when, it, when that comes to heat in places that are unprepared for it, if you're, or if you're uneducated about it and you don't know what to do or how dangerous it is. And we have media showing pictures of people at the beach or kids playing in sprinklers. It becomes a very dangerous combination. Mm. Definitely. I think just to go on what you were talking there about, especially um, the vulnerable communities. And, you know, we do know that, yeah, it's people who are older, people who have existing illnesses, people with disabilities, young kids, pregnant people, like, you know, are really vulnerable. But something we saw in COVID in Australia was, you know, and what we've seen now, you know, I get weekly updates about the number of signed up to a government email list. Um, about the number of people dying from COVID that we have sort of come to um, feel pretty neutral about, which, you know, for a couple of years it was, I mean, everyone followed on a day-to-day -day basis and shaped their, you know, lives around. And now we've normalised um, the number of people dying. And I think part of that is people thinking, oh, these are vulnerable people. You know, these people might get sick anyway. 
And you talk in the book about there is a calculus, like a this sort of horrific but calm calculus of like a number of people will die, like a number of workers will die. And these are things we already know about what will happen, um, you know, in the future. And in Australia, sometimes we've been talking, you know, there's reports saying like Darwin is going to become potentially unlivable in a few decades' time. But what the word unlivable hides is that, you know, a huge number of people will die before we understand that it's too dangerous to live there. But something you talk about in the book is the racism element of that as well that's really firmly, um, I think, also true in Australia but is very true and very present in the US. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, how racism figures into, you know, what we think of how different people can accept heat and live through heat and things like that and how we therefore don't protect those people. Yeah, well, well, I see that very clearly here in uh, Texas, where I live, um, where most of the outdoor workers, uh, whether it's you know building streets or building buildings or uh, putting new roofs on houses or whatever it is, are Mexican. Uh, they could come across the border. The vast majority of the outdoor labor force here are, are Mexicans. And there's this unspoken, sometimes spoken, but mostly unspoken idea that well, we don't have to worry about, you know, heat is not a problem for them because it's hot in Mexico. They're used to it. You know, it might be too hot for us, you know, to work outside, but they're fine. And this is a um, idea that has deep roots in um, racial history. It was a big part of the sort of scientific racism that drove slavery in the 19th century. You know, there was a lot of, and I write about this in my book, there was a lot of back and forth with plantation order, owners, some of them with some, you know, minor twinges of con- of conscience, were worrying about their workers out in the cotton fields, you know, in the extreme, in the heat of the day. And there was this notion that was quite popular that, oh, they're from Africa, they're used to the heat, you know, they have thicker skulls or they have different sweat glands and, and they're fine. You know, and and one of the, you know, important findings for me in my book is that all people are the same. There's no racial uh, difference between how a black person or a brown person or a white person experiences heat. There's no difference in the number of sweat glands. There's no difference in, you know, the circulatory system. There's no difference. There's obviously difference in skin color that has to do with you know, um, sunlight and, and things like that, but it doesn't have anything to do with with ability to endure heat. And, um, you know, that's a really, um, I mean, it, there is differences with body size and health, but that's not racial, right? It's just, it depends on if you have a strong heart, a weak heart, a slender, tall, slender body, a smaller wider body, you know, those kinds of things can make a difference, but there's nothing racial about it. And I think that that underlies a lot of the thinking about, certainly here in the United States, I mean, you know, we had this extreme heat dome here um, in Texas and in the Southwest uh, just two weeks ago. And during, literally during that, in fact, literally, I think on the hottest day in Texas history, measured human history. And I may be wrong about it, whether it was exactly on the hottest day, but it was close to it. Uh, our governor signed a, a legislation prohibiting any local ordinance, any city in Texas from mandating water or shade breaks for workers, for outdoor workers. 
And, you know, this was just a deliberate, a, a clearly kind of barbaric, you know, uh, um, legislation that, you know, he couched it all in economics and, you know, we can't have workers sloughing off. And there's this whole Texas thing that I think there's also some in Australia too, of the, you know, we're tougher than heat, you know, we don't, you know, we're not, we're not wimps, you know, we can handle the heat. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing is just barbaric and it's just tragic. And there's been, you know, a bunch of backlash against it here, but I think it's emblematic of the combination of sort of a, a kind of unspoken racism and a kind of macho ignorance about the real risks that we're, that we're facing. Yes. And I think that 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 like, you know, we can deal with heat thing came up in Australia and it's really terrible way last year during the European heat wave when there was Australians saying, oh, 40 degrees, that's nothing. You right. know, at the same time now we know that like 60,000 people died, but there was this attitude of, um, oh, that's not that hard to handle. You must be weak. You must like not be able to handle it, you know, and like, I think part of that came from people's ignorance around, you know, who is dying in heat waves. Like, you know, it is like people who are in lower quality housing, it's poorer people, it's people with disabilities, it's migrants. Um, and I don't think if they truly understood that, then they would have been making those jokes. But, you know, now we do know that, what, 60, 70,000 people have died tragically last year and that that isn't going to be an exceptional number going forwards um we've got a question I'm, I'm sort of trying to keep track of the questions in the chat as well um but there's one that's come up about you know is one of the situations in europe quite different to the us where people just don't have aircon um and that if we had aircon then you know maybe people would be safer and maybe that's a solution but you know and that's a live discussion for us in australia about you know should we in our opinion, we should definitely be building houses a lot safer, regardless of whether they've got mechanical cooling or not. But there is an element of people who are just like, oh, we'll have the aircon. Like, is aircon the solution or is it part of the problem? Like, we know that the IPCC, when they've talked about maladaptation, you know, when we respond to the climate crisis in a way that makes the climate crisis worse by increasing carbon emissions, air conditioning is the number one example they use. So, yeah, my question is, like, is it the solution or the problem? Well, I mean, you know, I get that all the time too. And the the answer is it is it's both, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's both a solution and a, a big part of the problem. And, you know, but this notion that we're just going to we don't have to worry about heat because we've got air conditioning and everything's going to be fine is like profoundly naive and profoundly dangerous in kind mm -hmm. of thinking about the larger changes that are happening. So. You know, I wrote this book, you know, largely in an air conditioned space in Texas, and I would go outside and try to write it and spend a day or so outside and then it would get too hot and I would have to come back inside. I understand the virtue of air conditioning and, you know, it's something that we live with. But it's also true that, you know, I'm an elite and there are billions of people on this planet that are not going, who do not have air conditioning and are not going to get air conditioning. We do need to democratize access to cooling spaces more for sure. That's really important. But this notion that we're that everybody is just gonna somehow get air conditioning and you know that's gonna solve the problem is just 
you know, profoundly naive. Secondly, you know, we're not going to air condition the wheat fields, the corn fields, all of the, you know, food production areas that are incredibly vulnerable to rising temperatures that have a big impact on our food supply. You know, we're not going to air condition, the, you know, the wildlife that is out there, um, you know, everything, every living thing suffers from extreme heat in the same way humans do. And, you know, we're just going to write them off and live in our air conditioned bubble. And that's okay. And finally, the other problem with air conditioning is that is that it's it's a kind it, it encourages a kind of architecture and building of these sort of sealed buildings and windows that don't open and this kind of hermetically sealed off life that you know can seem fine as long as everything's working but you know one of the infrastructure experts in my book that i spent a lot of time talking to talked about the coming inevitable in his view coming of um, what he called a heat Katrina, referring to Hurricane Katrina in that hit New Orleans um, 10 years ago or so. And you know, that means that in a major city like Melbourne or in Sydney or in you know Penrith or whatever place you want to name, and it's a 42 degree day, and you have a power failure. And of course, the grid is most strained during um during um, these extreme heat waves. You know, you have then a lot of people all of a sudden with no air conditioning trapped in these the unventilated buildings that become very, very dangerous, you know. Um, and in my, in my book, I talk about air conditioning as this technology of forgetting also. I mean, you know, because of air conditioning, we are, we I mean, generally people who are, you know, the civilized world, but architects and home builders and people who buy homes, have forgotten that we know how to build, you know, other ways of cooling, you know, the naturally cooling systems, moving air around over cool spaces. I mean, people lived in the Middle East in the 15th and 16th century and built amazing structures that were very cool. Um, here, even in Texas, you know, you know, it wasn't like nobody was living in Texas prior to air conditioning. Lots of people lived in Texas prior to air conditioning. And they built houses in different ways. They had, you know, what's called dog trot houses, where the separation, big hallways in between, transoms that open up, letting the hot air move out. Um, just to wrap this up, I, I get a little worked up about air conditioning, as you can tell. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I had a conversation with uh, an, a very famous architect whose name I won't reveal because we were kind of talking over drinks, and I wasn't, yeah, I, I wasn't on, on the record conversation. But he's built some very famous buildings um, that most of you would even know the names of if uh, if I told you about them. And I said, you know, how do you think about air conditioning? And you know, you know, how important is it to you in in this um, office buildings and housing and stuff that you're building? And he said, I could. We don't need it. I could design buildings that work without it, no problem. It's it's not necessary, even in the hottest climates. We we know how to design to cool buildings off. Um, but our clients insist on it. They want to be at 72 degrees or whatever number the number is all the time. And so it's become this addiction to comfort more than anything else that is, you know, um, very dangerous because, you know, we do know how to build in different ways and we don't have to just build, you know, glass boxes and steel boxes and then, you know, uh, bolt an air conditioner into, onto them. You're listening to a conversation between the founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities, Emma Bacon, and the author of Heat, Jeff Goodell.
Yeah, I think um, that resonates a lot in Australia. Like in our, you know, it's not just apartments, but also in suburbs at the edges of our cities, you have a lot of very close together um, buildings with air con. So there's no airflow. They're not being built to be naturally cooling. Sometimes they have no eaves or hardly any eaves. And if you think about, you know, houses that were built in Australia in very hot areas, like after colonisation to manage the heat, um, big verandas, like people could yeah. sleep outdoors, you could open the house, things like that. And it's actually, I think, quite a common sense thing that we talk to people about as like part of sweltering cities is saying, you know, this isn't, um, it's not a design challenge in a way. Like, you know, of course it's amazing for us to continue to excel and create new materials and new houses, like new ways of building and things like that. But um, in terms of some low-hanging fruit, there's things like, you know, in Western Sydney, you go into the um, outer suburbs and you'll see a lot of black roofs, which we know yeah. heat, like not just our homes, but our suburbs. I think Matt Santamoris from UNSW has done studies to say if Sydney swapped over to lighter coloured roofs, it would cool the city 2.3 degrees, which, you know, when you think about rising temperatures, like that could make a real difference. But absolutely, the problem is not that, yeah, the problem is not that we know that cool roofs are a good idea. The problem is one of politics and one of um you know companies saying oh people want these we could never we could never ban black roofs because this is what people want but yeah this is low-hanging fruit that will save lives right yeah um just coming slightly on to the nature question because what's something i really appreciated in the book was the stories about how nature is affected because sometimes those stories help us um understand the severity uh in a way that human stories like of course they do impact us but you know for example in um parts of australia like flying foxes they can't uh live after above a certain temperature so you'll see whole colonies die at once so five six seven hundred um flying foxes just dead on the ground uh during a heat wave and that's become quite an evocative symbol for people um when you were learning about when you're investigating the impact on nature was there any particular story about an animal adapting or not adapting that really struck you that you like that you know you found to be one of the more important ones or um you know was it about diseases was it about mosquitoes like what was something that struck you well as you know if you you know if you've finished the book the one that, that's very obvious is that um i was uh on a cross-country ski trip on Baffin Island uh, going across basically the ice for six weeks and um, was confronted and uh, at like uh, you know very close distance by a very hungry polar bear with two cubs um, and you know the reason that she was very hungry was because the ice that she needed to use as a hunting as a hunting ground as a perch for a hunting ground for seals was gone and so she was scavenging for food and me and my friends looked like two big, uh, very juicy hot dogs laying out on the on the ice. And so, you know, why not um, go munch on them? So, you know, that was an example of, you know, polar bears are, you know, often criticized as, you know, overused icons of climate change and all that kind of thing. And they are in some ways, but it's also true that they're a great example of an animal that, um, is perfectly adapted to the climate that they live in. And 
you know, one of the ways that all animals, including humans, deal with changes in, in heat is to move to cooler places. So frogs go up higher up the mountain where it's cooler. You know, mosquitoes fly to warmer places. Uh, they follow the heat essentially to stay in their sort of perfect, what um, I call in the book, the Goldilocks zone. Uh, and, but animals like polar bears have nowhere to go. There's no, there's no cooler place to go from the North Pole, right? And so those animals are in, in big trouble. Um, animals that um, can't migrate easily. Um, I've written a, a lot and thought a lot about, I grew up in California and there was um, big salmon runs there where the salmon, um, they go out, you know, they spawn in the freshwater rivers and then they go out and spend their lives at sea. And then they come back five or six years later up the same rivers to spawn again in the exact same place where they were born. And as the heat rises and we have these extreme events, these streams that they go back up are too hot and they basically suffocate because when the water temperature rises really high, the oxygen level drops dramatically. And so you have these spawning salmon, which to me are iconic for all kinds of reasons of my own childhood and personal reasons and, and all that. But um, you know, their entire life pad, life cycle is disrupted because of a change in the stream temperatures of a few degrees. And, you know, the ocean, you know, and, you know, I spent, uh, I've been to Great Barrier Reef to Heron Island a number of times. And, you know, that's one of the better preserved or better protected parts of the Barrier Reef. But even there, you know, even in the times that I've been there, I've seen the changes. And, you know, we forget that, um, when we're talking about extreme heat and things, we're not just talking about, you know, Penrith and Melbourne and, you know, Perth. We're talking about, you know, uh, the vast ocean that surrounds us and all the life that's in that ocean and these, you know, amazing, miraculous living structures like the barrier reefs that are, you know, just obviously incapable of moving at anything like the speed that they need to would need to move in order to deal with these extreme heats. And so, you know, they're goners, right? I mean, it's, it's warming up too fast. And so the living things that are going to be sort of lost in, in this warming is, you know, to me, one of the, you know, hardest to deal with because, you know, this is dumb humans doing this and, you know, the, all the rest of the sort of animal and plant kingdom are suffering for our greed and stupidity, basically. Yeah, I reading the book, it was maybe a surprise to me as someone who came to it with a certain point of view that we did end up in the Antarctic and the Arctic in a book about um, heat. And what I enjoyed about it is, you know, we're in these extremely hot places and you go to somewhere very cold and we're back in hot places and we go to somewhere very cold and, that contrast like isn't just you know something you can almost feel in terms of the temperature but also you know you're going from the very local like someone dying like planting trees in the US um, and their family story to like here is how um, the globe is being affected here is Antarctica somewhere where like you know so few people have ever been where we can see the same um, you know the same phenomenon um, at a global scale. So that was really something that surprised me, but was very interesting um, to have included. Uh, I'm sure people appreciate it. Um, well, one of the reasons I wanted to write about Antarctica is because um, um, 
and I had an opportunity to go there on a research vessel is to show, you know, we are talking about extreme heat and high temperatures and, you know, uh, uh, you know, what happens when it's 42, 43, 44 C kind of thing. But I wanted to show that even small changes in temperature, like in the Southern Ocean, like which is changed by only about one degree Fahrenheit, less than one C, um, has allowed the, the slightly warmer ocean water to get underneath these enormous ice sheets in West Antarctica and destabilizing these enormous ice sheets and causing them to begin to kind of crack and fissure which could lead to a large-scale collapse of these ice sheets and raise sea levels, you know, a, a meter or two around the world. And so I really wanted to, it was the best place I, I knew to underscore this idea that, you know, it's not just these big temperature jumps that are important, even small temperature changes mm -hmm. in certain environments like that have global consequences for millions of people and trillions of dollars of real estate and investment. Yes, and it's a very, you know, exciting part of the book going to Antarctica as well. Um, in the book, you also, at different points, reference social disruption and conflict um, caused by either heat waves or things like food insecurity um, related to rising temperatures. And I know there's some early studies coming out of the US saying that hate speech increases, um, you know, with rising temperatures, like on hot days. And we know that assaults, domestic violence, things like that, do also increase during heat waves. Did the process of writing this book change the way you think about the social impact of climate change? Um, and I guess, where did you see the biggest warning signs when it comes to potential conflict related to rising temperatures? Also, this is a very serious question, but um, I also want to say that we're going to take a couple of questions from the audience um, in a sec. So if people want to get their questions in, please put them in the Q&A. But um, yeah, I guess, you know, this question about social conflict leading from climate change. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, first of all, it starts in an anecdotal way. I mean, it, all of us, anybody obviously on this call has experienced, you know, extreme heat and been to or visited places where it's been very, very hot. And, you know, you get cranky. <laughs> it's hard. You get, it's, it, it changes your brain in a way, right? And there's not a lot of research about how that works. And you know, there's some stuff that I cite in the book and there's beginning to be more and more of it, but how exactly um, heat changes our character is a really important and new area of research that that's just kind of becoming uh, that is just unfolding but it makes intuitive sense to anyone who has been in these kinds of situations um, but you know the the real uh, I think engine of conflict driven by heat is migration and and, and you know, refugees and people moving, you know, for example, Pakistan, where I set a, a one chapter of the book, um, you know, that the southern part of, of Pakistan is one of the hottest regions in the world. And there's, you know, millions of people who are there. It's a very un politically unstable part of the world. And, you know, these people, like anybody, any, any living creature will eventually need to move away from there because it's just too hot. And so where do they go? And what are the implications of that? And when you start thinking about, you know, vast swaths of the Middle East, for example, again, a very volatile part of the world, um, 
becoming you know too hot to live in for for months at a time what does that do to the political stability of that place where you have you know tens of millions of people in a volatile part of the world seeking refuge and you know seeking cooler places and you know then there's the you know one of the hardest things to grasp about climate crisis in general i think is this idea of these cascading consequences of one thing leading to another leading to another leading to another and one example of this is um related to heat and migration and the things that we're talking about is it's not just that it's oh it's too hot so i'm going to try to move and go to a cooler place it's that the crops are failing because it's hot so there's no food and so we have you know increased famine obviously parts of our world uh you know west africa other places are already suffering from you know famine and food shortages and as it gets hotter and hotter that's just going to increase and so it's too hot there's no food people are going to move and and you know it's it's that is an engine for conflict and chaos and i live here in texas you know migration the border is the big issue it drives everything in american politics right now and in Australia also, obviously, you know, you have similar kinds of issues with who can come, who can stay, who can go. And all of the politics of that is going to get much uglier as mm. it gets hotter. And also things like sea level rise, especially for Australia, when you have these island nations that are looking for places to go, how is that going to be dealt with? Um, it, it's a it's a real you know it's a hotter world is a more destabilized world yeah and i think thinking about the rights of climate refugees is such a important thing for us to do before we get to these crisis points like you mentioned the sea level rise and pacific you know and i know that people in the pacific it's a very fraught um conversation in some ways around uh transitioning away from their countries and their communities or you know staying and not doing that so it's very fraught and we need to obviously look to their leadership um about what they want to happen but it's definitely something that we can't wait until the disasters strike even more and more and more um to tackle this political question um, I'm glad to say that some of the questions in the chat have been a bit more optimistic about what than mine, um, which is great uh, to see from people. So I'm going to focus on a couple um, from John and Julie about um, solutions uh, as well as the problem. So John talks a little bit about um, saying of, you know, some of the heat-related deaths in Phoenix last year, and I know this is also true of Los Angeles, that a huge number of the people who died were unhoused. Um, and we know that poverty intersects very clearly with heat vulnerability. Um, in terms of, you know, and it's like when I describe sweltering cities work, I talk about, you know, we're working at the intersection of climate change, health and inequality. And that's not just a view of the problem. I think it also has to be a view of the solutions um, that we are, you know, as we've been talking about with air conditioning, it's not, you know, if we've got an air conditioned world and we've got people dying because their air conditioning breaks, like that's not an acceptable future that we should be going for. So, are there any other things that, you know, like advocacy you've seen, solutions, government programs, things like that you've seen that are tackling like inequality and poverty as well as rising temperatures at the same time? Like who who should we be looking to for um, good work on this that we can uh, lift up and amplify? 
Well, I mean, there's a wide variety of, of of things going on around this. So, you know, one of the ones that you kind of hinted on there is, you know, air. You know, we talked a lot about air conditioning, and and one of the things that we didn't talk about and that I explored in my book a lot is that people who have air conditioning but can't afford to run it, right, or are behind on their bills and have their electricity shut off and things like that. And in places like Phoenix, there's been a lot of progress on, um, you know, passing laws that, for example, forbid um, uh, power companies from cutting off electricity, no matter how where someone is on their bills, uh, on on days when the temperature is above a certain threshold. Um, there's ways of subsidizing and making air conditioning cheaper for people um, who are marginal, who are having to make this decision between do I turn my air conditioner on for an hour and a half or do I save the money and buy dinner, you know, basically. Uh, and so there's a, been a lot of progress on trying to kind of democratize um, the uh, uh, penetration of, of air conditioning. That's been interesting on the policy level, you know, on the um, obviously urban trees, urban shade, is a big issue, um, uh, a big issue in Australia, a big issue in the United States. Um, and trees are wonderful green spaces, public spaces, public cooling that don't require you to have your own private, you know, air-conditioned igloo, you know, and that you places for people to go. Here in Texas, we see it in the public parks here on a hot day. People are just, they're just jammed, you know. Um, so the, the the virtues of shade as a as a um, commodity, you know, are really are really huge in and and as a public good, and you know we're, we're seeing opening of cooling centers um, that function not just for extreme heat but for other kinds of disasters. These sort of you know public spaces that are designed with you know access to cooling, but also Wi-Fi and, and all kinds of things, places for people to go who don't have anywhere else to go when things get rough, whether it's from fires or, or, or whatever it is. I think creating these kind of public spaces, other things that are really helping, I think there's a lot of innovation on messaging uh, about climate change, I mean, about heat, you know, um, ranking heat waves, something I write about in my book, Naming heat waves, something I write about in my book, this, like you can name tropical storms or hurricanes, you know, communicating the risk to people. Because, you know, some people say, I don't I think this is a little facile, but it's true that nobody has to die in a heat wave. And it's sort of true. Because mm -hmm. if you have access to shade and cool and water, uh, you don't have to die. Right. And so there's, it's it's very different than, you know, storms and drowning and things like that. So there's a lot of emphasis on that, on getting people to understand the risks better so they can take better actions themselves, looking in on people we know are vulnerable, you know, things like that. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, this always comes back to the thing that can never be said enough is that the reason that our temperatures are rising and it's getting hotter and hotter is because we continue to burn fossil fuels. And we have to reduce fossil fuel emissions much faster than we're doing. And Australia is like Texas, where I live, 
one of the you know major culprits in all of this and we need to look at that forthrightly and straightforwardly and and understand that and you know there's no longer any economic reason to be burning fossil fuels clean energy is much cheaper everywhere in the world than fossil fuel energy you know texas is booming with clean energy solar power and wind power so i think that we can't lose that in this sort of adaptation conversation mm -hmm. We have to remember that we have to we have to keep pushing harder and harder and harder to eliminate fossil fuels from our from our cultures. Hundred percent, Jeff, and I think that this is probably a good note for us to be wrapping up on. Um, but it's definitely quite shocking from an Australian perspective to know and to speak to so many people about how severe the heat impacts are. You know, whether that's doctors who tell stories of people dying in their homes or people who tell us that they can't afford their air conditioning and so when they feel sick um, with heat, they'll drive around or they'll go to the 24-hour Kmart, like Walmart equivalent, um, you know, to, to know that and then see that Australia is still opening up coal mines um, is just totally unacceptable, I think, for anyone with a conscience and for anyone with any understanding of what the climate impacts we're already facing are and how severe they're going to be. Um, so I know that that's our job on in the Australian. I know people joining here are almost all from Australia, but um, definitely when we're telling these stories of heat, we have to continually make that demand that like we need to turn off the oven. That there's Absolutely. like you know we can plant trees, but we need to turn off the oven. Um, and also, I can't believe we got to 50 minutes in before talking about trees because normally it's uh, one of the first things we talk about. Um, but I think you also covered one of Julie's last questions. So where do you see signs of hope? But before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to um, let us know? I'll also then, you know, make sure people are aware of the discount code, things like that. But is there anything else you'd like to um, share with us before we sign off? Well, no, I just, I would just like to underscore that, you know, um, I, I do feel very hopeful about this moment in a, in a bizarre way. The word hope is very complicated, but, um, you know, I think that we're at this moment of transition um, in our world where we're going to figure out how to build a better world. We're gonna be able to, you know, we have this opportunity to redesign, to rethink how we generate energy, how we um, build homes, how we, you know, get around kind of transportation we use. It's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a, a, a revolution and that's nothing new to say, but it's very exciting and I'm, very hopeful about it. And, um, but I also think at the same time, we really have to keep underscoring the risks and dangers because I think if you don't grasp the scope and the scale and the speed of the changes that are happening, then the solutions that you suggest are band-aids and they're not really looking deeply into the scale of what we what we face. And so I, I often push back on this. I, you know, virtually every conversation I have with a media person in this publication of this book so far is ends with, okay, Jeff, are we doomed or not? Right. It's always that. And, you know, it's not a binary question. You know, mm -hmm. we have a lot of, we have a lot of say in how this all plays out and some will be better off than others, but we have to grasp we can't shy away from talking about how much is going to be lost, how dangerous this is, what the risks really are, because only by facing that can we really come 
to grips with solutions and what we need to do. And I think exactly there about, you know, when we understand the scale of the problem, we can stop thinking about heat as an individual issue that's about putting a coal towel on the back of your neck or, you know, um, whether you can afford air conditioning or not, and actually say like millions of people are being affected at once. This is a huge problem, a severe problem, and therefore we need ambitious solutions. And we can be really positive about what those solutions are and, you know, working with people to imagine a future where we have safe homes, where we have leafy streets, no matter how like poor your neighbourhood is, where we have great public transport and like fruit and vegetables, not just for the rich, but, you know, for everyone and clean air, clean water. And I think that that future of talking about that with climate action is a really positive framing where we're not, we're acknowledging the problem, but we're also saying like the process of winning will improve all of our lives. Um, right. So that's, I think, yeah, I agree, an exciting point um, to get to. But thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you've been uh, on lots of media, things like that, and I'm really glad you've been able to talk to us. Um, we'll be sharing the video with people, but in case anyone wasn't aware, also Black Ink has given us a discount code for 25% off the registered retail price um, plus shipping for the book. And I know we've had lots of questions about transport and agriculture and all sorts of different things. And I strongly encourage people to read the book. I um, I learned, I, I do this work and I learned so much um, about, you know, heat impacts and I really enjoyed it. So the code is HEAT2023 at the checkout and it's valid for the next week. Um, and we'll also send that around with the video. But um, thank you so much, Jeff, for your time today. It's yes, thanks, Jeff. Thanks Sweltering Cities and thanks Emma Bacon. You did a wonderful job as the interviewer. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now I have just a couple of other requests. Please follow this episode because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, feel free to share this with a friend. In fact, I implore you to share it with a friend because... This episode is loaded with information about heat and we need to understand heat if we are to successfully combat the climate crisis. So please share it with a friend. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.